Hello and a warm welcome to this edition of the Script Podcast. I am Vibha Ravi, sub-editor with Script and Pink Sheet, and I'm having a conversation today with Mr. Shankar Musunuri, who is co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Oxygen Inc. Most of our listeners will likely know Oxygen on account of its tie-up with Bharat Biotech for the COVID vaccine, Covaxin. But Mr. Musunuri's company is working on a gene therapy platform that we will talk about more during the course of this podcast. First, some bit about the man himself. Mr. Musunuri, who has a PhD and a business management degree, is a seasoned biotech veteran with over 25 years of experience advancing and commercializing a diverse portfolio of products. Prior to co-founding Ocugen in 2013, he held leadership roles at several companies ranging from big pharma to startups. Dr. Musunuri spent nearly 15 years at Pfizer, where he gained extensive product launch and lifecycle management experience, playing a key role as global operations team leader for the vastly successful launch of Prevnar 13. Prior to the Pfizer stint, he was a group leader focused on clinical development at Emilin Pharmaceuticals. He is a recipient of the Distinguished Alumnus Award from the University of Connecticut School of Pharmacy and serves on the advisory board of Fuqua's Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Duke University. Apart from Oxygen, he has also founded Neuron Biotech where he serves as president and CEO. So Dr. Musunuri, welcome to this podcast. Thank you, Abba. Thank you for having me today. So being an entrepreneur, what would be the top three pieces of advice you would give to an aspiring startup? One needs to have a clear vision where they want to go. That's extremely important. The second thing is don't reinvent the wheel. You really need to have a sounding board of other entrepreneurs and so that you don't repeat the mistakes, at least minimize the mistakes. You know, as an entrepreneur, you will make mistakes. You will fall, you need to move up. That's the second um, advice. Third one, I would say is never give up. Entrepreneur, entrepreneurial journey is very hard, very complex. At times, you know, when I left a nice job at uh, large pharma, became an entrepreneur, um, people around you, um, I mean, it's, it's tough. They see you're doing extremely well, then you're struggling sometimes, you're moving up and down. And so that's something you have to learn. Um, you need to be very resilient. You can never give up and you will be successful as long as you have a clear vision, you focus on it. And so that means you have a vision, you have a goal, but targeting that, that that's what entrepreneurs do. They, they never give up. That's very important. So those are the three things I would say. Clear vision, never give up, and don't reinvent the wheel. Always have a sounding board of other entrepreneurs has been there, done that, learn from them. That's really interesting because you know, that's the same thing that uh, Mr. Robert Langer, <clears throat> who we all know is a great entrepreneur and innovator, uh, said to us recently at a conference. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a good one. Uh, now, what is the most memorable and forgettable part of your entrepreneurship journey? I mean, the forgettable part, I'll, I'll come to that part. I mean, it's it's not um, 
easy to forget things, but I would say um, when you, your company goes through ups and downs, when you are on the downside, you know, we ended up, you know, a few years ago, laying off some employees at Oxygen. We had a, you know, um, result in the clinical trial we, we didn't anticipate. And so as a company to survive, we had to lay off some employees. And that was very hard for me. That's the first time in my life I ever did that as an entrepreneur, and it's hard. I mean, people only see when the companies are growing in the growth mode, how many people they hire. That's tough when it stays with you. And uh, how do you go from there to a journey, uh, most exciting journey, the last year, the company, you know, we were in gene therapies and we adopted into getting into the vaccines um, because our leadership has a deep history in vaccine development and we could not sit on the wayside, um, you know, jumping into this war um, of COVID and fighting it. How do we contribute? We are prepared as soldiers, right? We all have a lot of experience um, at work, and, uh, and 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 we thought, you know, we cannot sit aside and jumping into it and are really trying to contribute to that. I think uh, that whole dynamic. I think I think if it, if it, in fact, we had a you know, year and uh, get together uh, all the employees and every one of those employees in my company, I could proudly state. They really care about patients. That's the moment I can never forget. I mean, every management team member in my company, when you look at oxygen, they all focus on patients. You know, just like Steve Jobs, they focus on the customer. We focus on our customers, patients. Rest is a byproduct. I think that's the culture we're instilling. And we all believe in it. We, and, and every employee who comes into the company, they're so passionate about the therapies we are working on, either vaccines to, uh, for the public health initiative to save lives, or gene therapies who can have a significant impact on many, many millions of lives globally. We focus on the patients. That's very important. That's, that's the memorable moment. Yesterday, I get together when I talk to people around, going around and talking to employees, and, and, the, and, and the, the sense of pride they have that they work for oxygen is something you know you don't earn in a day. It takes years of effort. And when you see that, I mean, it's just a matter of time. It's not about you know, commercial success. It's about really uh, instilling and, and hiring good people. And, uh, and, and also they have the same culture, same accountability, um, same, um, you know, um, the, the 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 positive attitude. You know, we really have to do something for the patients. That's important. That can take us a long way. And that that's a memorable moment for me. Yesterday, when I had a great get together with all our employees before holidays, they have been working extremely hard during COVID times. When some of the people are sitting in in places they don't even want to come out when the COVID started, and we could not stop. Our employees continue to work throughout the COVID. Even today, they continue to work. Omicron is not going to stop our work or any other variant. That's a memorable moment for me as an entrepreneur. Great. <clears throat> so I agree that uh, people do make a company and its culture. Uh, but as you said, you know, every entrepreneur has, has his uh, worries and motivations. So what keeps you up at night and what energizes you in the morning? I mean, every, I mean, this uh, whole um, COVID um, co-vaccine, for example, 
it, it's not easy, right? I mean, we started um, the journey, we have great intentions and we continue to do that. Our goal is to contribute to this public health initiative and save lives and we're going to get there. There are bumps on the road. Um, we are not the first ones, right? We have three other vaccines which are had emergency use authorization. One already has approval in the US. So that, that's, a, that's a tougher road, um, but that's what keeps you up. How do you navigate? How do you make this, you know, from a public health perspective, working with the government, working with agencies, and take this to the next level so that you know this can be available as an option? That's what keeps me up. How do we get there? How fast can we get there? When you see the Omicron, some other variant tomorrow, it could be some other variant coming up. We do know how valuable this vaccine could be in saving lives. And however, what energizes me is uh, uh, my employees. You know, when you go there, everybody has such a positive energy. And uh, I look forward every day. I get up, it's a new day, I move on. And they, my employees and, uh, you know, my colleagues, they energize me. And, and what we are doing together, that's what energizes me. Right. So obviously this partnership with Bharat Biotech counts for a lot. So uh, given, you know, that there was a recent on the clinical trials for BBB 152 or uh, better known as Covaxin. What is the likelihood and anticipated timeline for FDA approval? Now you applied for, uh, you know, emergency use uh, in children also. So what would what do you see as a likelihood and anticipated timeline for use in adults and children? For the adults, um, as we stated before, we, we wanted to follow uh, for the biological licensing application because this pandemic is going to stay for, you know, we believe several years, it's not going to end soon. Therefore, we wanted to make sure we have a, a longer outlook. How do we have a product approved, not just emergency use, biological licensing application, and what are the studies we need to do in the US demographic so that, you know, we meet those requirements since most of the data is coming from abroad. So one of the requirements is doing a bridging trial, which uh, does immunobridging to large safety and efficacy trial our partners have done in India, which is about 26,000 patients. So this immunobridge will allow you to state this is equivalent. And, and if we, any other you know, additional studies we need to do for safety in the US demographic, we'd be happy to establish that. We did uh, provide a significant amount of data coming from our partners and also safety surveillance data after 55 million doses administered uh, from the government of India system, just like our CDC system here, all that data was provided. So that's the um, clinical trial we're trying to do um, in order to meet the requirements of the BLA uh, sometime next year. And that trial is the one which is on hold. Um, typically, when FDA has the clinical hold, they have up to 30 days to provide questions, any clarifications they need on, on our filing. And uh, so we are anticipating, hopefully they'll respond to us this month. And as soon as they respond, um, on our team is standby and we're going to work as uh, soon as possible and provide those responses so that we can move on the clinical trial. We do have a large CRO and uh, lined up, we got everything ready to go. We have the product, we have everything ready to go. The clinical sites, everything is established. As soon as we get a green light, we're going to initiate those 
um, immunobridging trials in the U.S. population. The second one question you asked is about emergency use authorization in pediatric population. Emergency use authorization um, is based on unmet medical need, and uh, FDA has uh, you know a lot of leverage based on the unmet medical need from the public health perspective. Um, you know leverage that and see when they can issue EUAs, emergency use authorizations. So in case of pediatric population, when we received data from our partner from India, they already filed for um, emergency use in India. The equivalent of uh, um, an advisory committee, SCC in India, has already approved it. They're awaiting their equivalent of FDA, DCGA approval uh, for 2 to 18 pediatric population. And the data, when we looked at it, it's compelling. First of all, it it, it showed equivalent bridge to large um, adult trial they did, uh, immunobridging. And the clinical trial also has compelling safety data, including 100% uh, prevention of hospitalization. None of these kids in the trial got hospitalized. For them. And, and, and also the trial showed uh, solid safety data especially related to severe adverse events such as myocarditis or thrombosis are known as you know, blood clots. Um, many of the parents in the US, they are looking for choices. If you provide choices to um, people, it will automatically improve the vaccination rates. And so when it comes to children, there are other outside surveys people have done independent uh, independent surveys, and they do um, um, support having choices for kids in this country. So one is unmet medical need, which is you know two to five age group in the U.S. Today, there are no approved or authorized vaccines. From five to eighteen, we do have Pfizer vaccine, which covers. So if you take that entire range of two to eighteen, uh, obviously there is a need. There is a need. Unmet medical need from two to five. We are the only ones, first one to file for the age group. And two to 18 group also provide having a vaccine such as ours, which is a, you know, which has a broad immune response beyond spike because we have, you know, it's a whole virus based vaccine. You get support from other antibodies, uh, which could be beneficial for current variants or future emerging variants. And a solid safety data um, with uh, no severe adverse events such as myocarditis or blood clots could be beneficial option for parents. So that's the reason we applied for UA. Currently, it's undergoing review with FDA. Right. So staying on the topic, uh, you know, as you said, Pfizer is already approved for the 5 to 18 age group. And uh, given the nature of you know the trials, pediatric trials. It's 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 a step down to the various age groups. So, do you think by the time you get go ahead for the clinical trial, Pfizer would have also got approval for that age group, which is the unmet need you're talking about right now, which is the two to five year old? Pfizer has uh, not filed two to five yet. They may file in future. Um, currently, so the clinical trial is for adult. You know that, that's the trial which we're going to bridge for biological licensing application in future, but emergency use authorization is already under review with FDA. So um, again, if Pfizer files it tomorrow, we are hoping FDA is going to treat us fairly 
as other companies and give us an opportunity um, to get a fair review, including uh, advisory committee review so that you know they can make a decision. OK, and so when this clinical hold was, I mean, hold was placed, did FDA communicate at the time anything to you about the reason why a hold was placed? At the, at the time of clinical hold, um, we didn't get any specific questions. Um, um, I mean, they have up to 30 days to give us a questions, and uh, that's what we're waiting. OK, fair enough. Um, so now does Omicron complicate the equation for you in terms of the BLA license? Would you be would you have to conduct you know additional tests to see if it works against the variant? And what kind of a, a, a number of volunteers are you looking at to conduct this uh, trial for the BLA? So the first question is Omicron. Um, um, as other companies are doing, um, we will have the data on Omicron too. Um, um, and again, this is not a clinical trial. Uh, everybody is doing a neutralization assays, and uh, it's important to do um, whole virus neutralization assays in the labs, not with the pseudovirus, to get uh, you know uh, meaningful results. So we're going to wait for that. However, uh, what we have seen the other variants we have shown um, with the vaccine a good neutralization effect. I mean, I think uh, even with the Delta, we're the only company which showed um, through our partners data in a controlled clinical trials. When they were doing clinical trials in India, um, about 90% were variants. So when the vaccine trials were done, for others which are here in the US right now in the market, um, at that time, the variants were not emerging. Right, it's the original strains. So compared to that, in India, 90% were variants when they were doing the phase three clinical trial. Within that, they they showed prevention of hospitalization is 93.4%. That's significant. That's what people are looking at today. With Omicron, people are stating, oh, if we can prevent hospitalization even 70%, that's good. And so people are uh, looking at, and how do you prevent hospitalizations, right, and death? That's very important. And in the middle of all those variants, they showed overall efficacy of 78%. And they specifically um, did the uh, map to find out which of those uh, subjects had specifically Delta variant, and the majority of them had Delta variant, and they showed 65% efficacy from a controlled clinical trial. That's real data. So the data you're getting from you know surveillance studies and all, they don't have control. So when you do a clinical trial with a controlled clinical trial, that data is solid. And and uh, this is the only vaccine which showed, um, you know, solid data from a controlled clinical trial on Delta variant and also showed prevention of hospitalization, very high percentage when they had 90% of the, um, you know, cases for variants. That's important to note. So that's the first part of the Omicron. So as other companies have stated, when we get the data, um, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll be known to the market uh, how it does. But however, then they also did neutralization um, uh, using other variants. You know, they had uh, Delta prior to that. There were other variants. They always uh, showed very high neutralization with this vaccine because the, how this vaccine is made. Um, the problem with this uh, variant and current spread and emerging variants is 
um, the virus is mutating in the spike part. And all three vaccines, uh, which are here in the US today, they're all based on the spike-based protein. You know, you, they target the spike, and that's the part uh, which is mutating. So if you made a vaccine based on the, you know, original structure, and now even in the RBD, they have about 10 mutations. So scientifically, you tend to believe, you know, your efficacy is supposed to go down. That's exactly what they're observing. However, our vaccine is built similar to polio vaccine, right? Which eradicated polio with the whole inactivated virus with an adjuvant that boosts the immune response, which actually was co-developed by NIH in the US and it was licensed back to our partners, Pfizer. Because of those key elements, this inactivated viral vaccine is different than a couple of inactivated vaccines in China. This has that additional adjuvant to boost the immune response. In fact, uh, this week, um, you know, we gave a press release based on the, you know, memory data, the B cells and T cells, which are extremely important um, for the protection. First of all, that publication preprint showed, you know, uh, up to six months when they measure, they still have antibodies, which are broad antibodies, not just spike. They also had antibodies for the conserved portion, nucleoprotein. And that's the part, you know, which potentially doesn't mutate. So when some part is mutating and you have a vaccine which built just on that, scientifically, you are going to reduce the efficacy. Eventually, you will create a viral escape. However, if you have a broad-based vaccine such as ours, you're producing antibodies against, you know, like a nucleoprotein and other parts. And scientifically, it has to neutralize it. And that's exactly what the studies actually observed in the past when they did neutralization assays. It fared much better compared to spike-based vaccines. So we are hoping, um, you know, based on how it's built, this vaccine should show a good potentially. It should work on Omicron and future variants. So that's the crux of that. And and as soon as we get the data, it will be known to the market. Right. And and so so that's that's the I, I think uh, you're talking. That part, and you're also asking about uh, clinical trial, right? The second question, could you repeat? Yeah, I was asking, what are the numbers you're looking at for the bridging study? Yeah, the bridging study uh, typically we buy. You don't need a large trial. Uh, you're talking about a few hundred patients. And the good thing about this study is, um, you know, it's very difficult to get new patients, as you know, uh, at this stage in the US. Uh, I mean, even though um, there are a significant portion of Americans who are not vaccinated. However, our study also allows people who have got vaccinated with the mRNA vaccines. However, they have to be vaccinated in you know, six months or earlier. That means those uh, subjects will also be enrolled into the study. So hopefully what this study will give us uh, in this uh, in a few hundred patient study um, will not only bridge the immunobridge with the you know, large efficacy and safety trial we did. Um, uh, our partners have conducted in India successfully. It will also allow us to learn uh, about some of the subjects. We've got other vaccines in the US, and this is almost like giving them a booster. I mean, how this booster and broadening the response in these patients, not just giving another spike booster, right? You are giving a inactivated virus vaccine, which should broaden your response. That means you will have antibodies beyond spike, like nuclear protein and other antigens against them. 
So that should really help and protect, you know, because you always want to think about vaccinating and giving boosters to, um, um, you know, subjects um, in the middle of the pandemic. Um, number one, the durability, how long it's going to work. Did you create a memory? I just mentioned about that memory paper. And uh, uh, at six months, they showed good T cells and B cell. That means it, 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 the memory is going to last a lot longer. Uh, it should be durable. Number three, it should also have a broad immune response. That means not only getting worried about the current variant, or the future variants, you know, if that one part is changing, you have other parts of the virus, you're developing antibodies, you have ability to neutralize it. That's important. That's how, you know, you really have to have multiple uh, vaccines in the toolkits who do different things. And then you need to come up with a solution. How do you control the pandemic? That's very important. People have to really take a step back. It's not about having, you know, billions of doses of one type of vaccine. Unfortunately, you know, it is that simple. We could have controlled the pandemic by now. It's not that simple. Number two, you need to vaccinate majority of the folks globally. It's not like few countries. Just vaccinating in few countries and you know giving boosters to them, and, and this is never going to stop. This pandemic is going to continue to spread. So all the developed countries, US is pitching a lot, and I'm hoping they'll continue to increase their global vaccine diplomacy and you know get the vaccines and give it to the global population to control this pandemic. So. So there are multiple ways, you know, we can help out. You know, if you get a inroads into the U.S., uh, we are happy to work with our government, not only for U.S. vaccination in this country, we want to contribute to the global vaccination. Right, so on that note, uh, could you tell us what's the status of, uh, you know, the approval in Canada? The approval in Canada, this is, uh, um, when we filed for um, approval in Canada, they had a something called interim order, uh, which is equivalent of our emergency use authorization. That interim order uh, was expired. I mean, when we filed it, we we're just on the tail end of it. They accepted our application. They did tell us, hey, this order is going to end potentially, then we'll roll it into new drug submission. So this is almost like a BLA in the US. So it's going through um, regress review process. And as a, um, in, in between the review, you know, we do get uh, you know, questions, sometimes deficiencies, and uh, um, and we are working with Health Canada to respond to them. Um, so the process is ongoing. So I mean, at this stage, at this stage, I cannot comment on specific timeline uh, when the approval is going to come. I mean, our our goal is, you know, when any regulators review our file, when they have questions, our goal is to respond to them uh, as soon as possible in a in a very efficient manner, so that you know we can continue to uh, you know move the clock and make sure um, they get all their questions addressed so that we're putting the company and the product in the best position to get approval. Right, so if I got this right, it will go through a full regulatory process in Canada as well now? Yes, that's right. Because they, they, that uh, interim order equivalent of UA got expired. That okay, process. when did this expire? I believe it expired in uh, September. Okay, okay. Yeah, but the process is on now for the full regulatory review. Yes, and, yes, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, it's, a, it's called a new drug submission process. That's equivalent right. of our biological license application in the US. Right, right. Okay, 
so uh, moving on to a slightly unfortunate development that had happened in the US, which was the class action suit. So has there been any favorable negotiation there? And if not, what is your plan to mitigate, mitigate the impact on the company? Uh, first of all, the company believes the lawsuits are without merit and intends to vigorously defend against them. Um, at this time, no assessment has been made um, as to their likely outcome or whether the outcome will be material to the company. So, so I think at this stage, you know, because it's it's in the process, it's difficult for me to comment anymore. Okay, thanks. So then we move on to a more, you know, a brighter topic, which is your gene therapy platform. So what commercial promise does this modified gene therapy platform hold for Ocugen? And could you share the plan for the clinical trials of OQ400? Is there some, uh, is it expected to begin by the end of this month or uh, it's this some kind of a delay? Oh, with this, uh, uh, our gene therapy platform, it's very exciting. Uh, I'll briefly mention about what this does, this platform means, what it means to patients globally. And then I'll talk about the clinical trial. Uh, there are no delays with the clinical trial. Uh, we got uh, very exciting news last week. Um, this is a new platform technology um, with with a lot of potential promise patients across the globe, and uh, we did get our IND approved within a month, a stipulated time, and uh, we're ready to go to the clinic. And I'll give you more details about it. Uh, coming to the uh, this gene therapy platform, which is known as modified gene therapy, this is based on uh, this is typical of like these are like master genes in the retina, uh, unlike uh, a traditional gene therapy. Um, you have a mutation or a defective gene, and uh, you have a functioning gene. You inject to, you know, typically AAV vector, and uh, um, you, you should, I mean, typically one dose, you know, uh, for the um, lifetime potential lifetime treatment, right? Uh, in the in our case, if, if there is another mutation, then you have to start the product development, start from scratch. It will take you eight to ten years. So the 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 differentiator of our technology is. This is based on this nuclear hormone receptor genes. They are like master genes in the retina. I mean, if you take like OQ400, their first product, uh, which is about to go into the clinic uh, with the IND approval very shortly, um, this has potential to treat many mutations with a single product. You know, if you take a disease such as retinitis pigmentosa, there's about 150 mutations under that. There is another disease, Leber congenital hemorrhosis. But there's about 25 mutations total together 175 mutations. If you take the traditional gene therapy platform, it's almost impossible to develop products with that many mutations, right? And some of them could be thousands, some of them could be 10,000 patients, and globally about 22 million people struggle with these diseases. And many of them are desperate for rescue because many of them could become legally blind by the time they're in mid 40s. There is only one product approved in the US, which covers very small population for one mutation. Therefore, using this technology, these are like master genes in the retina, and uh, they control the functional network from cell development to survival in all associated gene expressions. Um, they bring the homeostasis to the retina and, and the rescue. Therefore, 
based on the data we have, we have four orphan drug designations for the same product from FDA. We also have a broad orphan drug designations from EMA, one for RT, retinitis pigmentosa, another one for LCA, labor congenital neurosis, covering all this. So this clinical trial we're embarking on is going to start with the two mutations, NRTV3 and rhodopsin. Um, and potentially, we may start another mutation clinical trial too. So this is phase one, two, small um, clinical trials as orphan diseases. Um, less than 10 patients per, per mutation. And then we move on to phase three clinical trial after one year of phase one, two. The phase one, two, the primary objective is safety. And along with that, we'll be looking at observational endpoints for efficacy and uh, multiple ones we're going to monitor during the clinical trial. And depending on the mutation, the endpoints for a primary analysis for the phase three may change. So we're going to pick one based on this one year duration clinical trial, then we move on to phase three. Uh, that phase three will have you know, a primary endpoint based on the data we generate from phase one two. However, all the patients are going to be monitored for safety every three months. Um, so we do have all the clinical centers, everything lined up in the US. Very excited to get it going with the patients as early as you know, um, um, in the first quarter next year. So that's what is going on with that product. The second product, so once again, sum it up. We got one product from this master gene uh, technology platform targeting potentially many, many inherited retinal diseases, which are orphan diseases, which are under the umbrella of RT and LCA. Um, about to embark on that. And, and so at least, you know, there is a potential hope uh, of those for those two million patients globally waiting for it. The second part is we have RQ410, another gene therapy program targeting dry age-related macular degeneration. This is big. About 150 million people, um, patients globally struggle with this disease. Currently, there are no approved therapies, significant unmet medical need. It's a very complex disease. So we have a program based on RORA gene, which is RQ410, and we do have um, promising in vivo and in vitro data. And uh, currently, uh, based on the agreement, we have a roadmap from the FDA. We're executing those studies, um, doing the GMP manufacturing, doing the preclinical toxicology studies. Um, once they are complete, uh, we'll be taking this program into the clinic. Can you imagine giving a single injection um, and, and for a potential cure for this large population globally, the impact we can have with this gene therapy? That's the reason we get so excited with our gene therapy programs. You know, developing gene therapy mutation by mutation with the first program is almost impossible for any pharma company when you have, you know, 175 mutations um, to treat those, you know, major orphan diseases uh, and, uh, and underlined mutations. If you have muta mutation agnostic gene therapy program like we have, um, it's potential to treat all those, such an Im immense impact the patients can have, you know, in, in the coming years. And then another program targeting a large population, people don't think about it, you know, millions and millions globally, 10 million patients in US alone. Uh, that's going to be a huge impact from healthcare perspective. That's why we're excited about it. And that's the differentiator, a game-changing technology platform 
in the uh, in the in the eye space and specific to retina. Uh, that's what we have in Arcigen, and uh, we're working extremely hard to move them. Uh, the first program will be in the clinic, as I mentioned, very shortly, um, with an approval of, of USFDA. We're really thankful to them. They have been extremely collaborative on this program. Very exciting, and I, for the patient's sake, I do hope that they do come to market. Um, on the same products, you have an ag uh, agreement with CanSino Biologicals, Biologics, sorry, uh, for CMC development, and they also have the option to support commercial manufacturing. Would you be able to share some uh, commercial terms regarding royalties and or milestone payments with them? Yes. Consino has uh, manufacturing collaboration on both RQ400 and the uh, 410 programs, and uh, they have option to commercialize. As you know, gene therapy manufacturing is very complex. It takes uh, um, um, several years to get to the you know finish line and come up with the process and uh, make a clean you know, GMP process and scale this process up. Uh, we already uh, outlined uh, and also notified the markets uh, with the help of our partners, we scaled up this process to 200 liters. Uh, in gene therapy terms, it's pretty good scale, uh, you know, kind of a commercial scale. So this is good and uh, we have a solid process going in. And uh, we also um, can use them for commercialization um, while we look for other options, we will have several years before we get to commercialization of this product. So we will, as a, any other biotech or pharma company, will start looking into uh, other potential commercial options for commercialization for manufacturing options in the, in the US or um, European Union, while uh, we can count on our partners on Sino for first commercialization, because they do have large facilities, um, they have excellent uh, expertise, and with our gene therapy expertise and their expertise, and we have a great team together. So the as far as the licensing terms are concerned, they do have greater chain of rights uh, for these products, uh, where uh, when they sell the products, um, Arcigen gets uh, you know, mid to high uh, single-digit royalties. Similarly, Pansoino um, is taking a lot of risk on these programs. Um, they do entire chemistry manufacturing controls all the clinical trial manufacturing, all the development support, everything, um, you know, taking risk on it because we don't pay them for any of this. They absorb all the costs. And on the back end, in our market, uh, you know, X greater, you know, everything belongs to oxygen. And in our markets, they, they get uh, um, single digit, low to mid um, uh, single digit royalties. So that's the arrangement we have. There are no milestones. Um, the, that's why this partnership is very strong. Uh, they have a significant skin in the game uh, for our success. And, and uh, they're a very large company, biotech company, very well established, uh, significant expertise and uh, great facilities. That's really good. Right. So gene therapy in general, you know, it's, it's a, a bit of an area fraught with risks. So what has been your experience in, in this regard? Gene therapy, yeah, uh, just as a, any cutting edge uh, technology we have, you always have risks in science, right? And so we just have to overcome that for the benefit of the patients. And uh, we have to, you know, understand and to use the science to slowly solve the problems. What are the risks? And I just want to differentiate, uh, you know, for the listener's sake. Um, in in case of gene therapy, there is a systemic gene therapy, and then what we are studying in a, almost like a pocket, like eye, um, and and then 
you know, in the iSpace, um, typically um, it's a targeted, right? I mean, we are giving a subretinal injections and it, it, uh, it goes into where the target is, where the gene is supposed to function. And in case of, uh, you know, systemic gene therapy, unfortunately, our technology is not there for a targeted delivery to specific places where you want to take it, specific target cells or organs. You don't have that. And so lack of that, I mean, obviously, I mean, I can give you typically in the eye space, you know, we target um, 10 to the 11 gene copies, uh, you know, per dose or below. And uh, in systemic delivery, you're talking about 10 to the 14 and up. So you're talking about thousand fold minimum increase in systemic gene delivery. So that's where uh, probably you're seeing uh, when you look at the data coming out of other companies, uh, there are significant uh, side effects or safety issues. Um, so the, the technology and science still has to evolve and get there. I mean, ideally, if you have targeted delivery, uh, you'll be able to control the dose and, and reduce it to be more effective. Um, I mean, luckily, you know, there's a product in the marketplace in the space. Um, um, it's safe and uh, um, it, it's a kind of a, a protected, almost like a barrier. It's an organ you're targeting in the space and you really go into the target. So that those are the benefits we have with our gene therapy, and uh, and also there are manufacturing issues some of the companies have uh, the purity of the product and how they make it, and uh, as I mentioned, you know we have great expertise in gene therapy, very solid expertise, and our partners have solid expertise. Um, so as a combined team, um, they did a phenomenal job. Kudos to them. I'm very proud of them what they did um, with the, with the new technology platform. Um, you know we've been working with FDA. Ever since we had the pre-IND meeting, they've been very collaborative, addressing our questions. And when we filed the IND, also we had a very collaborative back and forth. And within the 30-day clock, uh, you know, uh, 30th day, we got the approval. So that I think I, I'm very proud of our team. What they did, it's phenomenal. Uh, getting that first IND approved for a new technology platform is phenomenal. So we'll continue to, you know, uh, take steps very cautiously, and uh, safety of our patients is. Uh, you know, at the top of our list, and uh, that's why you know this uh, phase one to clinical trial, the primary um, endpoint is safety, and we'll be continuously monitoring these patients. And uh, along with that safety, we are going to get you know monitor for some signal on the efficacy side, so we can be better prepared to go into phase three. I wish you the best, and uh, it was really nice talking to you, Mr. Shankar. Thank you for your time. Uh, with that, we come to an end of this podcast, and I hope our listeners found it interesting. If you're not already subscribed to Pharma Intelligence Products, you can begin with a free trial by registering on our sites. This and all our other podcasts are available on the Pharma Intelligence channel on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Spotify. Bye for now. And I hope you'll be listening in the next time around as well. Thank you, Viva. Thank you. Thank you for having me today.